Hi, I'm Gary Duncan, the executive director of Worldwide KFUO. Thanks for listening online to our programs, our stream, our podcast, our online on-demand audio. We appreciate you. Remember, KFUO is a listener-supported broadcast ministry, so we do rely on your support to continue. So please prayerfully consider making a gift today. You benefit from the programs and you know how important it is to get the message out to the world. And that's what we do every day here at KFUO. For more information, you could call area code 314-996-1518 to talk to Mary or 996-1520 to talk to Mark. Ask them about the different ways to give to the ministry of KFUO. Thank you in advance for your support. Also, tell your friends about us. Most important of all, pray for the ministry of Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of knowing why you believe what you believe so that you will be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks about that hope that you have and the totality of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is coming again to do. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are on a journey through the landmark Christian dogmatics of Dr. Francis Pieper, a monumental series of books devoted to belief that when God speaks, he does so in order that we speak his word back to him. That sound doctrine is not just a set of right answers to be kept on a shelf, but the effect that happens when Scripture alone, grace alone, and faith alone, pointing us ever to Christ alone, meets life as the answer, the salve we so desperately need in this age of darkness, this veil of tears. St. Paul exhorts all Christians to hunger for the truth, to watch your life and doctrine closely, to persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. For the time is coming, he warns, when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. But you, Christian, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And so encourage others. I have with me as guests today two brothers in arms, pastors in the church, both uh, acquaintances from my my time up in North Dakota. First, Pastor Adam Moline of both Emmanuel Lutheran Church and St. John Lutheran Church in Hankinson, North Dakota. Uh, Welcome, Adam. Welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. And then Pastor Adam Filipek of Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Uh, I repeat myself. Welcome, Adam. Thank you, Jonathan. Good to be with you, my friend, and greetings and grace to our hearers out in St. Louis and in the listening community. So for the listeners out there who might not be familiar with southeast rural North Dakota, uh, Pastor Molly, why don't you tell us a little bit about Hankinson, about where it's located, what it's known for, and your, your two parishes there. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, we're kind of in the, uh, both Pastor Philip Heck and I in the southern banana belt of North Dakota. Um, Hankinson is about uh, 15 miles from Minnesota and uh, 15 miles from South Dakota. Uh, we have a uh, uh, about 1,000 people here in the metro area of uh, Hankinson. Uh, we uh, mostly uh, German people. We have a Oktoberfest every fall, uh, and uh, it's just a really nice community and a great place to live. Pastor uh, Pastor Philibeck, you're kind of new to the region, but you're an old hat too, right? 
I am. I was born and raised in mine at about five hours north of here. So coming back to North Dakota is a joy and a privilege for me. I know that most people always say, North Dakota, who lives there? But my joke is that was always, uh, I left a few of my family members back there. So they're there. But now, see, I'm here. So it's no longer a joke anymore, Jonathan. It's reality. But my context is very similar to Moline's context in that we're only 13 miles apart. And so we're very close. I have two congregations. I serve the dual parish, of course, Emmanuel and Holy Cross. It were a new dual parish, actually. And we are entered into because Emmanuel is the mother congregation back in 1884. And Holy Cross, one of the church plants, one of the daughter congregations. But as time has developed, it has become a necessity that both Holy Cross and Emmanuel join together in the proclamation of the gospel to the community of Lidgerwood and the surrounding community thereof. Well, and, and even with that, you know, I've served in the cities and I've served in, in, in rural areas now, and it's, it's fascinating to find out that it's easier to find a church in rural North Dakota than it is in Philadelphia. It's, it's kind of an amazing thing, and, and it's a blessing, in fact, that, uh, that that's there uh, because you have good solid Lutheran history up in that region and a lot of good farmers doing a wonderful vacation of feeding, well, feeding the country. Uh, so, well, the, the main goal, of course, is not to talk about ourselves. Goal is to talk about Jesus. And we're, we're still uh, in the early parts of Dr. Pieper's text. We're just going to be looking at around pages seven through nine today, but he's moving into his second topic. We spent the first uh, few weeks talking about the topic of Scripture itself, where it was established that the thing on which Christianity must be founded, if we're going to have any kind of Christianity at all, is the Word of God, as delivered to us by Jesus, and that therefore means the written word of the prophets and the apostles. We're shifting now into the question of, so how does this compare then with the idea of religion? And I think this might be a question that the average American isn't wrestling with a lot, but back in the day, 100 years ago, when people was writing, there was this big movement amongst uh, the German kind of scholastic understanding that uh, trying to, to see how all religions were really one religion and how they all kind of just had developed slowly over time and, and kind of applying evolutionary theory to religion. Uh, and that's, that's really what we're getting into today. So what is religion? And the first quote I have for us to kind of play with here is where he tries to define the word itself, which has a, a strange history. He says, the Latin word, religion, has always been a debatable question. But the meaning of a word is in the last analysis established by its usage. Now, that might be a, a bit of a curveball to throw you guys right away here. But what's he getting at there? Why is it important even to, to try to define what a word is? What good does that do us? Well, well, I think that is a, an important thing. You know, the word's uh, meaning changes over time. Uh, and so we have to understand the way the meaning applies to the way we think today. Uh, for example, in the uh, old King James version of the Bible, uh, you know, we have it say, uh, Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. Uh, and back then, you know, that was uh, understood very clearly, let the children come to me. Uh, but now when we hear that with our modern ears, uh, that word suffer, uh, we think of, uh, you know, pain and uh, agony and things like that. And so uh, we do have to uh, understand words the way they uh, are used in our current language, uh, as well as uh, understand them in the past so that we can communicate that uh, gospel clearly. Pastor Philippic, what does that have to do with religion then? We are a people of language. I mean, this is the beauty of how God 
begins and how he starts everything in creation. And God said in the beginning, he speaks. And that speaking is very, very important because that speaking defines reality. And so the way that we communicate reality to one another, the way that we interact with one another is on the basis of language, grammar, words, sentence structures, all of this good stuff. The usage of those things do change over time. Language is fluid in that sense. But what people would have us distinguish here is that later on, as we'll get to it, there is such thing as truth. And I think that's really the, at the heart of this, that there is a usage, a story, a context by which people use it and by which people are understanding things. So we need to meet them in their understanding. But more than that, there is a reality and a, a truth over and against everything else. And so there's almost this play back and forth in this section about absolute truth and relative truth. Yeah, this really is what he's getting at. Let's, let's come back to that idea. Um, he does have a footnote that I, I'm not going to go in the footnotes of people very often, but on this particular one, as he's talking about this debate about the word religion itself, uh, the challenge is we don't even know really where it came from. So you have a, a fairly famous a scholastic philosopher, Greek philosopher, excuse me, Latin philosopher named Cicero, uh, who he says way back, way back in the day, that is from the word religere, which means to study something closely, right? So to have a religion is to care about it and study it closely. Whereas uh, a, a man named Lactantius, who I, I don't know him as well, uh, believes it's from religare, right? Just one letter changing, which, which then means to be obligated to God or, or to, be, to be under God. But at the end of the day, uh, that debate uh, d doesn't really settle it. There, there is no common usage. And I think this we can go straight to the present situation where the word religion in American parlance, though just the way we use it, that there's no common religion or uh, no common definition for the word. So somebody will say something like, you know, don't push your religion on me, and they'll mean one thing. Or they'll say something like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And, and in those senses, religion uh, is sort of a, a, a negative term. It's like a bad word almost. But then you have, you know, you say that somebody got religion, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they became a Christian. It could just mean that they became a nicer person, right? So even today, we have this really vast vacuum of meaning for this word. And, and what does it mean that when we say that all religions are the same? I think the important thing as well in that is Cicero and Lactantius, both in their definitions, show the heart of what's going on in our discussion, the difference between the two religions, so to speak. If you look at Cicero's definition, men who make all things. So this is about men who make things about God and worship God and the object of diligence, whereas Lactantius is more along the sense of, I, I'm bound. So we have almost in this sense of this definition, which is why the Lutheran reformers will side more with Lactantius of this religion of works versus the, the one true religion, uh, the religion that clings to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are bound in that sense. But the world, the world, Jonathan, it just flounders at this and it can mean anything from, like you said, the, the an actual confession of faith, what I believe, to just simply, I've begun to be a good moral person, which in and of itself. There, is not there was the a case. video that made the rounds a while back uh, from a from a guy, a, a poet slash Christian, uh, about how Jesus hates religion. 
And I got I got a great number of views, and uh, on my own, uh, you know, video show World Everlasting, I did a little rebuttal of it, but didn't get quite as many views as he did. Uh, but but the the idea again is is worth batting around. You know, how, what does he mean? Jesus hates religion. He, this guy was a Christian. He wasn't trying to undermine Christianity. I think he maybe did a little bit, but at the same time, there was this edge of the word religion that that sort of means man-made, right? As opposed to meaning what God has actually said. Um, and then this, we're, we're going to get into again, you know, the distinction between God's religion versus our religion. That's coming back. But this confusion, right, that, that we have to define the term before we can even talk about it, is a particularly true with, with this word. Any thoughts on there, Pastor Moline? Well, yeah, I think that's uh, exactly part of the problem is that uh, so often in our world today, um, the definition of words, the understanding of truth, and all those things are subjective. Each person has their own understanding and own definition, and um, um, that does make this uh, conversation a lot more difficult. Um, and so we do need to uh, kind of have that uh, idea of what the subject is we're talking about, uh, what is religion. Uh, and uh, and I think Peeper here, as we go forward, is going to help us understand what that is um, and um. Yeah. So he says there is no common usage that both the heathen, meaning those who are not Christian, and the Christians use the word religion to mean different things. So we're both using the same word, but we, we don't mean the same thing when we use it. The right. heathen, he says, naturally associate heathen concepts with this word. So they, they have a, a definition that reflects their false belief and Christians associate Christian concepts for this reason, we cannot arrive, and this is the main point, I think, here early on, we cannot arrive at a definition of religion comprehensive enough to include both Christianity and non-Christian religions. In his time, that's what the scholars were doing. They were looking at all the religions of the world, including Christianity, and trying to find, with the way they talked about themselves, a common thread that would bind them together. What people are saying here is you can't do that because there are assumptions that simply conflict with each other. And so you're trying to find the common thread to do that. You're going to you're going to strip away the things that are different. But when you strip away what makes Christianity different, you actually strip away Christianity itself. It has nothing left to offer. Uh, it is it is singularly unique, particularly in uh, the gospel. Right. Which is where Peter's going to be going here in a moment. Peeper. But yeah, um, the things that uh, make Christianity Christianity are unique, and they necessarily do separate us from other religions uh, in the fact that we do uh, confess that we're saved by grace through faith, uh, that Christ is raised from the dead. Uh, those unique things uh, are different than uh, Islam and uh, uh, Buddhism uh, and even all the other heathen religions that Peeper's talking about, those people who are not Christians uh, all lumped together into one place. Um, and so we have to uh, take pride and, and joy in our distinctiveness as Christians. Uh, the things that make us different from the world uh, are important for us to hold on to and, uh, and learn uh, and defend uh, rather than just uh, throwing it all out the window and uh, um, saying we are all the same. I want to get into what those specifics are. So let's use this next section here uh, kind of as a springboard for that to make sure that there's no question and we're not just asserting that we're different. Let's actually show it. It says what religion means to the heathen is the exact opposite of what it means to the Christian. And then he says the heathen know nothing of the gospel. Now that that's the piece that distinguishes us, right? The Buddhist, the, the, the Muslim, they don't have the gospel. Well, what's that? That's a word we throw around a lot too. And it, it doesn't help us if we don't have a definition for that. 
Absolutely. And Pieper does give us a concise definition on page nine. He says, the Christian religion is faith in the gospel. That is faith in the divine message that through the substitutionary satisfaction of Christ, God is already reconciled to all men. So yeah, this is the absolute big part of it, that God has joined you in the flesh, that you may join him in your flesh in eternity. It's God's message of salvation for you in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. God's message of salvation for you in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And so I think that in contrast, um, uh, heathen religion are all the, the rest lumped together. Those who uh, seek to reconcile themselves uh, uh, to God or to nature or to whatever by their own efforts, uh, works, um, sacrifices, uh, by being a moral person, uh, by, um, you know, trying to save the earth, uh, recycling tires or whatever. Um, so we have that contrast there between Jesus uh, and the things he does, and then uh, those people who think they need to do it for themselves. One of the ideas that I think does set the gospel apart in a very, uh, in a way that a secular person should be able to understand, right? I mean, this isn't necessarily a faith-creating thing, but it is incredibly different to have as the the core of your quote-unquote religion, the core of your quote-unquote spirituality, the historical life of a single human being, not his teachings, not not what he said or how he showed us how to live, but that there was this guy who did this stuff, right? Whatever that might be. Well, obviously it's the cross, but but you're talking to someone who's who's not a believer, right? And whatever that might be, you have this guy, and the rest of the religions in the world, every single one of them, even Buddhism and and Islam, which both have really important guys at their heart are still about what that guy taught. They're not about what that guy did. And at the end of the day, for the Buddha, he, he came to show you the way, right? And and for, for the prophet of Islam, he came to, to teach you how to worship God. And that, that's important, but it's a very different thing than, no, no, Christianity is about this man who we killed who refused to stay dead. And everything that he taught about what truth is revolves around, gravitates to, flows from that reality, the, the historical person and work of, of Jesus. And that that's the gospel, right? Uh, forgiveness of sins, justification, these are, these are wonderful things that are also in, with, and under that gospel. But at the, at the heart of it is, is this empty tomb, this thing that just is staring us in the face, at least historically speaking. And that sets Christianity apart in a way that you can't just dismiss and say, oh, we're all the same. Well, uh, no, right? We got this history to deal with. Thoughts about that? This yeah, is I, absolutely the heart of it, Jonathan, the historical narrative of Jesus Christ, the historicity of it. God became a man for you. Events that happened in time to which, you know, even Jewish historians, Josephus, Roman historians, Tacitus, all record historic events of Jesus's life, birth, ministry, death, all of these different things that come to, together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But that is fundamentally the heart of this whole discussion. You have children, Jonathan. You've read probably the book, The Little Engine That Could to them, right? This is the religion of man. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. But the religion of God, the true religion, knows this. I can't. 
I can't fix my life. I can't make it better. I can't be perfect. My life is a mess. I need someone. I need someone to save me. I need someone to forgive me. That person is none other than Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. That's the reality and the distinction between the two. It's scandalously unique, right? Go ahead, Moline. Yeah, I think uh, this is an important thing that we need to know. I just had um, a couple months ago one of our college students that uh, has been away um, uh, learning at higher education came back and had uh, brought me this uh, book. I don't don't have the title right in front of me, but it is something like How the World Religions Came About. Hmm. And uh, it really had hurt their faith in a way. You know, they're really struggling with this, uh, seeing these religions just... Uh, evolve uh, from one another, according to this book. Uh, and that's that's the way that uh, I think we have to uh, continue to preach the word, to connect them back to Jesus Christ. You know, we had a long conversation about um, Christ's life, death, and resurrection uh, is, uh, in, in a certain regard, historically verifiable. And um, it's Jesus that is the, uh, the center, uh, and we are uh, fairly certain that all these things happen to him. And so that is where our faith is founded, in Christ. Uh, we can say all these other things. We can make up uh, stories about how it came about. But the truth is, uh, as uh, Pastor Philippek mentioned, we have lots of historical evidence. Uh, Suetonius mentions uh, riots, uh, Tacitus uh, Josephus. Uh, we have uh, more historical proof, actually, that Jesus lived uh, and rose from the dead than that Julius Caesar uh, crossed the Rubicon River and uh, um, uh, did all the things in his life. Uh, and so there is a lot of evidence for it. If you're going to be an honest historian and look at what we really call archaeological or historical facts, which is always based on eyewitness accounts, no matter what you're doing. You know, even if you're doing math, it's ultimately based on an eyewitness account that it works, right? Somebody wrote that book mm-hmm. and you're trusting them. And so you, you have these things in history. And if you take all of them, uh, including the empty tomb, which is pretty much a, a, an unassailable fact of history, three days later, the tomb is empty. You know, you, you got to come up with some sort of conclusion based upon this. And, and in that, Christianity presents a pretty reasonable case because the, the various conclusions, the swoon theory, the um, the stolen body theory, the hallucination theory, all of these have big gaping holes in them. The only one that doesn't have a hole in it is that he rose from the dead. And well, of course, it has a hole in it. The guys don't rise from the dead, right? That's the hole in, in the thing. So you put your finger on something, though, Moline, which I, I don't want to go past, which is you got this student that came back with this book from, from college. And so, you know, I started by saying, you know, there, there was this debate 100 years ago and the German philosophers were were talking about the evolution of religions. And you might ask, well, why is that important to me? It was 100 years ago in Germany. Why is that important to me? And the answer is because that's what they're teaching your kids freshman year in college in their religious studies class, even at the secular universities. They're teaching them this German idea that all of culture has evolved, and that means religion too. And so Jesus is just a, a, a tricked-up version of some Roman or Babylonian god who borrowed all of the ideas uh, from mythology of old. And so Christianity is just a bunch of hocus-pocus. And if your kid's not prepared for that idea, if you're not prepared for that idea when it first hits you, it's not like you're ready to defend yourself. Quite the opposite. It's like having your head cut off, right? Right. It is, and uh, there is a, a tremendous amount of pressure at uh, universities. I'm in contact with uh, quite a few of our college kids uh, several times a week via text message or phone calls, and even even not just the, the professors, but also with their friends uh, who have grown up 
uh, maybe in other religions or uh, maybe as uh, uh, not religious, and they are always challenging them. And, and I think that is uh, something we need to do a better job with with our our, uh, our catechesis uh, in the, the early part of kids' lives is teaching them the faith uh, strong enough that they can defend that and uh, explain uh, the foundation of Jesus Christ when they are challenged on it. I always struggle with, I feel like, Christian education in in the church and the churches, and I'm saying this from you know being in a variety of congregations over over a decade, uh, is always we treat it kind of childishly. It, it, we treat it like it's sort of game time for the kids. You know, here let's give them a little religion. Um, I got nothing against color crayons or anything like that. My kids color, but I, I worry that because we're treating it like it's childish, we're, we're teaching them a childish version of their religion, that when they then come into contact with these very mature, uh, very aggressive other religions, including secularism, uh, that their their childishness has just got nothing to stand on. You, know, you mentioned equipping them. How do you equip them to apologize for their faith, to, to, to work apologetics? And, and that is not so you go out and you bash other people over their head, but so that you don't lose your faith when they look coming to steal it from you. Now, where do you start? Yeah, that's a great question, isn't it? And I think if there was a, a really simple, um, easy answer, I think maybe it wouldn't be so much of a problem. But I, I think we do have to treat our kids uh, like the Christian faith is, uh, an important, serious matter. We do need to uh, spend a lot of time teaching them the word. Uh, that involves parents at home um, doing uh, uh, devotions, teaching them hymns, uh, teaching them prayers, uh, the, the creed, the basics of the catechism, you know, as the head of the household should teach it, um, as well as uh, making sure that uh, in catechism, uh, in uh, Bible studies, we are giving them God's word, um, not just uh, uh, things that feel nice or, or look like fun. Uh, God's word, I think, is the key to that process, uh, making sure they know God's word, that they can use God's word. Um, you know, it's a challenge because I think uh, a lot of people, um, when it comes to the Bible, you say, you know, turn to Matthew uh, 14. The first place they turn is the table of contents uh, to see where Matthew is. And that tells us they haven't been in the Word enough, uh, and we need to do a better job at that. I don't know, Pastor Philippek, you have ideas on that too? Well, the Gospels themselves, the Gospels themselves are narratives that are meant for catechesis. I mean, if you look at John, the whole heart of John is, at the end of it, 20 verse 31, these things are written. What things? The entire book of John, the, the birth, the conception, the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension. Why are they written? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So it really gets to the proclamation of the gospel and the hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pick it up there on the other side of a break. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. Providing solid confessional Lutheran resources for pastors around the world. That's Luther Academy. Logia, the Journal of Lutheran Theology, the 13-volume Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and global conferences for strengthening pastors. That's Luther Academy. Sign up for our email news and support our efforts at lutheracademy.com or call us at 260-452-2211.
This week on Issues Etc., we'll have Pastor Ted Giese review the movie Rogue One. We'll continue our series, Our Social Progressives Anti-Science, talking with Dr. Kevin Voss about gene editing. And we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. The Lutheran Federal Credit Union is open to congregation members and employees of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and their families, and family members of students attending LCMS congregation-owned schools. Lutheran FCU offers checking and savings accounts, loans, and every banking need, including online and mobile banking. Lutheran FCU is part of a co-op network with over 5,000 branch locations. Lutheran Federal Credit Union is online at lutheranfcu.org. Equal housing lender federally insured by the NCUA. In the rush and mix of life, it is not always easy to catch your breath, sit for a moment, and remember the goodness of the Lord. With all the demands on your time, how do you fit in His time? That's why we broadcast His time weekday mornings on KFUO. Beginning at 7.15 a.m., we bring His time to you with prayer, devotion, and comfort to help you be still and know that He is God even while stuck in traffic. Underwritten by the Lutheran Federal Credit Union. Santa Claus, Christmas trees, and chestnuts roasting on an open fire. It wasn't until the early 19th century that Christmas traditions even slightly resemble today's holiday celebration. In 1860, famous cartoonist and illustrator Thomas Nast drew a magazine cover for Harper's Weekly in a now popular depiction of how we envision Santa Claus. And another popular contribution to Christmas tradition from the 19th century century is unquestionably from Charles Dickens. A Christmas Carol was an immediate bestseller in 1843. His character of Ebenezer Scrooge made a lasting statement on greed to Victorian England. And a book that has never been out of print. Perhaps lesser known is Dickens' The Life of Our Lord, written for his children. As each left home, he gave them a copy of the New Testament because, he said, it is the best book that ever was or will be known in the world. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Who are KFUO Day sponsors? They're people like you. They're listeners who appreciate and support the Lord's work in broadcasting the good news of Jesus Christ every day. For more information on becoming a KFUO Day sponsor, contact Mary Schmidt at 314-996-1518 or Joni Harwell at 314-996-1512 or email us to find out more at gifts at kfuo.org. Listen to our KFUO podcast on iTunes and our website at kfuo.org. Listen on the go with your MP3 players, iPods, or smartphones. Worldwide KFUO at KFUO.org, the messenger of good news. Welcome back to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. The Messenger of Good News. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, here with my friends, Pastor Adam Filipek and Pastor Adam Moline, talking about religion and using Dr. Francis Pieper's dogmatics as a way for kind of bouncing these ideas up into the air so we can discuss them on the basis of Scripture. And before we went to break, uh, Pastor Filipek was talking about uh, epistemology, which is a pretty interesting idea, and about the trouble of, well, what happens to our kids when we send them off to college. So if you could pick up there again, Pastor Moline, what is the challenge particularly, excuse me, 
me. Pastor Philippic, what is the challenge, particularly in the classrooms, as they're teaching religion? The problem when we get to the universities is on an intellectual level of sorts. We present, and honestly, and I'll explain this, it's it's sort of an epistemological dishonesty. And what I mean by that is when things are being presented at a university level, they lay out the facts that, well, we have tangible proof that you can taste, touch, see, smell, hear. Here it is why this is the case. But what we fail to realize why it's dishonest is to go back to what we said earlier about 10 minutes ago, everything depends on a word. Everyone must adhere and trust a word. Faith, everyone has faith in something. Okay, now not everyone has saving faith, faith in the one true God, but I can, here's an example. I can know how a car works, right? I can know that when I am going to start the key and turn the key it should turn the it should turn the starting motor that's going to turn it at a certain rpm we're going to have input intake and combustion gas all of that good stuff we're going to fire the pistons it's going to run i can know all about how a car starts but why did you get in the car and turn the key because the manufacturer told you that when you did that that vehicle is going to start so the fact that you are turning that key means that you are trusting that word so so what does that mean that they're trusting the word in that instance, if you do not trust the manufacturer's words, if you do not believe a thing that the manufacturer says, then guess what you won't do? You won't turn that key. It would be useless. If it wasn't going to start, then I wouldn't turn the key. But every time you get into the car, even though you know how it all works, Faith says, I trust that this vehicle is going to do what the manufacturer says it's going to do. So even something as simple as starting in a car, takes faith. Faith in the manufacturer's word that this is put together accurately. This is what it's supposed to do and it's going to do. Now the problem is, guess what? We're human beings. We're sinful. So our word and the words that we trust always fail. But there is one that doesn't. There is one word made flesh, the word of truth, Jesus himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. His word is certain. His word is true. And so if I'm going to trust a word, because that's what we all do, we trust people's words. If I'm going to trust somebody's word, I'd rather trust someone who is trustworthy and true. But the professor who says to the child or the student rather that my word is infallible, I can try to go ahead and identify Christianity and see its fault, is nothing more than simple idolatry. He or she, the professor, is trusting their words, their actions, their understanding over and against God. See, they're trusting their word. So are you going to trust the professor's word or not? And that's and that's where like the the classroom situation that a, a, a child, a college student, a even an adult finds themselves in is is like the teacher is talking about religion and they're presenting Christianity as this thing that's fallible because it can't really see itself. But then they're taking the position that they as teacher are infallible in their view of Christianity as fallible, right? They, they've got their own presuppositions that they never acknowledge, uh, that they're, they're kind of assuming certain other things to be true, which aren't necessarily true. And, and the big piece of this is, how do you explain the, the history of the resurrection? We don't have to go off onto, onto that tangent uh-huh. today. Um, but, you know, now you, Pastor Philippic and Pastor Moline, you both have mentioned parents, and, and the role that, uh, that really, if we want to help our kids learn to defend, it means that the parent at some point, kind of needs to be involved. And I think about uh, how 
how rarely it has ever been uh, that the child uh, in my parish who is the child of, uh, say, an Indiana University or for you guys, a, a North Dakota State University uh, football team or basketball team, they don't they don't jump ship. Right. Uh, they, they stick with the, the, the team colors. They stay with the team of the family, most cases at least. And yet you look in religion and, and nowhere near the emphasis is given uh, to what we believe as Christians as we give to these sporting teams. And I'm not against sports. I love sports. Right. I'm trying to teach my kids to be Blazers fans. We live nowhere near Portland, Oregon. Ooh, yeah, yeah, I know. I grew up there. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, it, it's which is more important. Right. And I think what it shows is the power a parent really has in passing something on just by showing interest in it. And parents have that have that responsibility given to them to teach these things, teach them the truth, your children. How often should I teach them? When I lie down, when I stand, when I walk along the road, which is just another way of saying all the time. Be diligently instructing your children in the truth, for there is no other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12, than that of Jesus Christ. That's well, what parents are responsible for. And, and so when you, uh, you right, he's exactly right, uh, you consider how a parent can do that. Um, consider, you know, so uh, one hour a week uh, divine service, uh, a parent takes their kid there uh, times 52 weeks in a year. Plus you have uh, Easter, uh, you have uh, Lenten services, Advent services are just about to begin uh, times 18 years. That's that's hundreds and hundreds of hours just in divine service where a parent can help uh, reinforce the word uh, in their child's ear. Uh, plus, as uh, uh, Pastor Philippeck was alluding to, uh, in the morning, uh, saying prayers at meals, uh, in the evening before bed, uh, spending time in the Word with the kids, uh, setting that example is a great thing. Uh, and uh, he also had mentioned, uh, you know, this this other word is idolatry, and he's right. I mean, this ultimately is a first commandment issue. Um, are we taking God at his word or are we trusting in some other idol? Uh, it's the first petition of the Lord's Prayer too. God's word, uh, God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity. And I, I think that that's, that second part I just mentioned there, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, um, I think a lot of parents um, are uncertain uh, about the word and so they're nervous talking with their kids about it because they're afraid they'll say the wrong thing and so i guess uh, i'd encourage the listeners here today um, if you're uncertain on the word you spend time in bible study uh in divine service in the word yourself ask your pastor questions that's uh that's why they pay us the big bucks uh, <laughs> to know the know the answers and to help you uh in teaching and i think maybe we need to get that mindset that um Pastors can help parents teach the faith, uh, but if we just trust that, uh, you know, well, I'm not going to talk about faith. I'm going to let the pastor do all of that. Uh, that's really uh, setting your 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 kids, uh, your family on a, a, a course for failure in a, in a certain way. So I don't mean that in a negative way, but encouragement uh, to parents. Talk to your pastor. Go to Bible study. Be in the divine service. Study the word. Uh, ask questions if you don't know the answers so that you can pass that on to your kids. 
the, the pastor can't replace the parent. The pastor can't help the parent. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the worship service as a time for teaching, and one of the tragedies, I think, so often is that we the main goal we have as parents in the worship service is to get the kid to be quiet. So we'll, we'll do anything we can to keep them over in a corner being quiet so that they don't interrupt the service. But like what we really should be doing is talking to them the entire service long, uh, showing them how to use the hymnal, telling them what some of those words mean, singing the songs with them, trying to, again, demonstrate that it means something to us. And that if, if you care about your religion and take action on that, that's going to rub off on your kids as much as as much as anything the pastor is going to do in a couple hours, you know, when they're 12. Uh, you know, there's some good bonding that happens in confirmation class, but it's often too late uh, compared to what you can do. You got a captive audience with your child, right? Uh, exactly. Give them something, give them something solid. So let's get back to religion. Uh, and the law, we got off on this earlier. I didn't want to go there too fast, but now we got to catch up. So the heathen, it's, uh, he tells us, have some knowledge of the law. Therefore, their entire religious thinking moves in the sphere of the law. Religion to the heathen means man's endeavor to placate the deity through a person's own effort and works, through worship, sacrifices, moral exercises, and the like. So that, now my word's not peepers. If you're outside of this gospel we talked about, this historical shift that happens in the man Jesus, the only answer to the problem of evil in the world, to the fact that there are bad things and apparently powers that maybe can fix or not fix that, the only answer we have is that somehow through works, worship, sacrifice, moral effort, we must trick the gods uh, into, into helping us. And that this is what the religion of the law is. So many religions are are focused on that. Um, we we obviously know real religions, if you will. Uh, Islam has uh, the steps you take to uh, uh, attain heaven. Uh, Buddhism has the steps you take to uh, uh, you know attain a higher knowledge. Uh, but then even um, other things, you know, like um, uh, the worship of our climate and the earth. You know, um, recycle, recycle, recycle. Uh, otherwise, you know, you're hurting and harming the world. Or uh, worship of the government uh, in another way. Government is good, and we should pray for our leaders, but we can't think that they are the final solution uh, and answer and that we need to participate uh, in a particular way uh, to to make sure everything goes well in our world. You know, um, we, we do need to focus back on that gospel instead of religion of the law. The law is not a bad thing. The law is a good thing given by God. The problem is we just cannot keep the law. We cannot be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. So in essence, there's really only one savior of this world and it doesn't come by stewardship of creation and activism there. It doesn't come by completely getting involved in the families and making sure everything is good, right, and salutary in our family. All of this is good, all of this is right, all of this comes from God. But to look at those things as the end of everything that is going to save everything is nothing more than idolatry. There's only one savior of the world. His name is Jesus Christ. That is what separates religion. Just like I said earlier, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. No, I can't. I can't fix this. I cannot make things better. I will struggle, I will strive. Lord, have mercy on me, and he does. I forgive you all your sins. I have suffered for you. I have bled for you. I have died for you. You are mine. Your sins are forgiven. It takes a good thing to be an idol. 
And that, that's kind of the trick in this whole thing, right? So you take something that's a gift from God, which is meant to be received with thanksgiving, and we turn it instead into the thing that we fear and love and trust, and we insert it into our uh, our little ladder-climbing religion of the law by which we're going to somehow placate the God who gave us the thing in the first place, right? He's already on our side, for Pete's sake, but we, we've mm-hmm. got this messed-up relationship with him, and that's all about the fall. It's all about what happened with Adam. But I think, then, what Peeper's getting at here helps us understand how you can have a person like that pastor who said Jesus hates religion. He is defining the word religion with the heathen word, right? That it is, uh, religion means a spirituality of self-justification. And in that sense, Jesus does. (laughs) He, He doesn't like that at all. The problem is that Christian religion, to quote Peeper again, and you guys read this one earlier, but has an altogether different meaning, right? It's not about the law. It is faith in the gospel, That is faith in the divine message that through this substitutionary satisfaction of Christ, God has already reconciled to man. And that's something I didn't mention when we talked about the historical event. Jesus died. Jesus rose. That's like the big difference between us and the religions. But then what does that mean that he was substituting us, right? Standing in our place, hung in our place, nailed in our place, killed in our place, and that this paid for who we are. That's an altogether different thing than pursuing virtuous codes, this is exactly the heart of Christianity. The wages of sin is death. Death for whom? Everyone. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in their own turn. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ, right? This is the idea that Jesus, there, there is a debt, that there is wages that must be paid. We owe something, and what we owe is our life. We deserve to die. But here is a God who loves us, who isn't just far off, but has seen our affliction and known the distress of our soul, who has stood outside of Lazarus's tomb and wept bitterly at the death and the sin that we have brought and the creation that has and the creation that has been corrupted. So, what's God going to do about that? He's not going to throw you away. He's not going to cast you to the side. He is going to engrave you in the palms of his hands with his own precious blood upon that cross. That's what it means. You can't fulfill the law. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus has taken your sin upon yourself, and he is the sacrifice. He is the lamb without blemish. God, he who knew no sin became sin for you, so that in him, in Jesus, you who are a sinner, could become the righteousness, the holy, perfected bride of Christ, bought with his own blood, forgiven all your sins. Yeah, for uh, for me, uh, this idea uh, always really strikes home uh, when I've baptized my kids, uh, especially, you know, uh, uh, Pastor Philippe's first name is Adam, my first name is Adam, and as we are doing the, uh, the rite of baptism, we say, uh, all sin which they have inherited from Adam, be drowned and die. Uh, and so, you know, if the focus is on me, on my works, uh, on Adam, uh, it's sin. It's uh, death is deserved, uh, suffering, punishment. Uh, but in Jesus, in baptism, as Pastor Philippe was saying, um, that's all taken care of. He's the one who died for the sin of Adam, me. He's the one who died for the sin of my child, uh, and um, now because he has done that, uh, I have the promise of eternal life, of hope, of forgiveness, um, and uh, peace everlasting. And um, that's truly amazing and, and a powerful thing uh, that we Christians have 
uh, that takes the focus off of Adam, off of ourselves, and places it uh, completely uh, into the hands of Jesus. And what better hands could you uh, uh, have your hope in than the Son of God, um, who is perfect, holy, righteous? Well, Marlene, someone out there is going to say, though, you know, you're so you're talking about grace here, and it's not works. But then you you just talked about baptism, and that's a work, right? That's something that you do, and or the pastor does. So I think you're I think you're getting things, you know, kind of switched around. What do you say to that? It's funny you should say that. Um, I was actually baptized, not in the Lutheran Church, and understood it that way, that um, uh, my baptism, before it happened, I stood up and said, you know, I accept Jesus, I invite him into my heart, and now I'm going to live a life worthy of him. Um, And uh, as a person baptized that way, the truth is it didn't last long. (laughs) Uh, I wasn't that great. I wasn't that good. Uh, Now, as I look back and I understand, baptism is not my work. Uh, I didn't do a thing in my baptism. Uh, It was completely God's work. Uh, Even the the pastor, he speaks the word, I baptize you, but it's not his word. It's the word of Jesus. And and it's Jesus, therefore, that is working in that word and in that water uh, to make me his child, to take away my sins, to promise me eternal life, uh, to give me the Holy Spirit so that I might hear his word and trust in it and believe in it. Uh, And so I'd say baptism is not uh, a human work, but it is God working in his word uh, and in that physical means of water. The danger of losing Jesus as the substitutionary atonement, the danger of losing Jesus as the one who is baptism, whom you were crucified with, died and buried and then rose again. The Romans 6, you were baptized. You didn't do it. It happened to you. It's a passive verb. The danger of losing that is that you lose all confidence and certainty. That's the real issue here. How do you, I know that I'm going to be in heaven? How do I know? And the religion of the law will never get you there. You'll always be wondering, have I done enough? God, is he happy with me? Is he pleased with what I've done? You will never have certainty even on your deathbed. The the When you depend on Christ alone, when by faith you cling to Jesus, you can look at Satan, who on your deathbed plays many things. I thought you were a Christian. Christians don't do this. Christians don't say this. How could you? You're not a Christian. You can say, you know what? You're right. I have never been sincere about my confession in Christ a day of my life. I have lived a life contrary. God have mercy on me, a sinner. But I do know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Where he is, there I will be also. So, I will be in heaven because Christ has said it and Christ has done it, not me, him. So get behind me, Satan. It's about certainty and confidence. That's where uh, Peter really has gone from the start here. Why he's emphasizing the centrality of Scripture being trustworthy is because once you lose that, you tend to, and he shows it historically, lose the substitutionary atonement. And once you lose that, you, you have no sure confidence and you're back into Well, being just another world religion, which he says here, such religious bodies within, and he's talking about Christian ones, within the traditions of Christianity that teach that a man is uh, reconciled to God wholly or in part through his works, have reverted to the pagan concept of religion. And their teaching on this matter is outside Christianity. Then he quotes Galatians chapter 5, Christ has become of no effect to you, you who are justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. And that's the, the, you know, the real threat then in all of this 
that this false idea of religion as a ladder that we are to climb would wiggle its way into our Christianity, separate us from the confidence we have in the sufficiency of Christ's atonement on our behalf, and leave us ultimately outside of Christianity and not even knowing that we landed there. I would just about take one minute each and and give some closing thoughts on that and maybe some hope too, because it's a dark thought to close on. You know, that that idea that um, there are lots of uh, Christian religions that uh, teach it's up to you. Even uh, I had a member uh, whose husband passed away and was told, if you want your husband to make it into heaven, you not need to make a donation to our, our church. It's a terrible, horrible thing, and it crushes that hope. But our faith is in Christ. He has done everything necessary for our salvation. Uh, in him and in him alone uh, is where we find uh, peace and comfort and joy. Uh, first commandment, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Uh, and the reason is, He's done everything necessary. He's provided for us, and he cares for us. You haven't. You haven't done enough. You're not the mother. You're not the father that you wish you could be. You're not the citizen you wish that you could be. You failed yourself. You failed God. You failed others. This is a very dark thought to end on, but it's not where Peter ends it. He ends with the fact that there is one hope and one salvation. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and that is why we go to church. We go to church to receive Jesus because we need what God has to give us in Jesus Christ. We need each and every week to hear those words, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As far as the East is from the West, so far have I removed your sin from you. You are my child. You will be with me in paradise. For I have spoken it, and I will do it. That's the confidence we have in Christ. We, we've only just Amen. begun digging into to Dr. Peeper, and he is only just setting up his defense and is teaching us to defend our confidence in Christ, uh, looking at Scripture and defining what religion is. We'll have more of that. How many religions are there uh, next week with some other guests? But today, my guests, Pastor Adam Moline and Pastor Adam Philippic, Brothers in Arms out of North Dakota, thank you for being with me today. It is written in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, in order that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by works of the law. Even we, even the holy apostles, even the most phenomenal Christians in the history of the world knew that their works were but filthy rags, their own flesh was a great hindrance and torment to them, that their religion, should they choose it, would be a religion of their own making, a religion serving themselves, a religion worshiping the God of their belly. But they believed in Jesus because Jesus is different, because what he did was undeniable and changed the world. They believed that his work on the cross taking the wrath of God upon himself in their place, was sufficient to declare them righteous, to make them actually innocent in God's sight, and therefore to institute a religion not of men, but the actual holy spirituality of God. That religion is yours, Christian. It is yours in promise. It is yours in effect, baptized, raised, living, waiting for that day to come. Universe, listen up. It's coming soon. Be ready. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. We are the messenger of good news. I hope you heard it this hour. 
We are underwritten this hour by Luther Academy. You can check them out at lutheracademy.com and let them know how much you appreciate them supporting Cross Defense on KFUO. Until next time, rock on. Thank you.